BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Chorology a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 90. When we let lived experience be our starting point or our point of departure, we might actually be transformed. This is the third time that I've had Dr. Robin on the podcast, and I am so excited for you to listen to this episode. Robin Henderson Espinoza is a theologian and ethicist based in Nashville. They work in the hybrid spaces of the church, the academy, and movements for justice. Robin was named as one of 10 faith leaders to watch in 2018 by the Center for American Progress, and they're the founder of the Activist Theology Project, a collaborative project that uses media, art, advocacy, and storytelling as primary forms of public theology and ethics. As an anti-oppression, anti-racist, non-binary, transgressive Latinx, Robin takes seriously their call as an activist theologian and ethicist to bridge together theories and practices that result in communities responding to pressing social concerns. Robin sees this work as a life-orienting vocation, deeply committed to translating theory to practice, and embedded in reimagining our moral horizon to one which privileges a politics of radical difference. Robin's book, Activist Theology, releases today, which is amazing. I think that's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast, is being able to do interviews and celebrate book launches with people who have put so much work into putting words on a page. So we we dive into their book, talk a lot about it. It's, it's such good theological work that is rooted in story. I don't have any announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Dr. Robin, hi, welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I feel like I think this is your third time on the show, right? Third time makes a charm. I think that's the most of anyone. You like you hold the record, so. Uh-oh. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, so to start, uh, this is a question you've answered before, but I, these things do tend to change sometimes. So how do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? There are a lot of things that are still the same. I'm still a non-binary transgender Latinx. I am still a divine doubter. I'm still 
a theologian deeply shaped and formed by the Christian tradition. Um, but the thing that has changed is that I've been spending a lot of time in church spaces and the church has been a bit more hospitable to me and has been a bit more welcoming. And I don't know what that is about or why that is, but um, that's been a shift in my work. Yeah, I mean, that feels like a, a huge shift. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I'm not very friendly to the church. You know, right. I, I really call out the church as being complicit in white supremacy and supremacy culture. Um, but there's been, I've really felt invited into the fold, so to speak. Um, and so that's the, that's the difference. So I, I don't know what that's, I don't know what to attribute it to um, or what that's about, but. That, that's a shift. That's so interesting. I mean, in, in some ways, that feels encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I, it's encouraging if if it's truly there's been a sense of transformation within the dominant culture of the church. But I'm always wary because I never want to be complicit in the very thing that is harming our people, right? And so um, I have to be very discerning and which is why I have a discernment team that helps me um, figure out how to proceed and what to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope, I hope that, I hope that it's encouraging to, to think about the welcome, the, the deep postures of welcome that I've been experiencing. Um, and in that sense, um, my faith continues to be conflicted and troubled um, and on guard, I would say. So you just published a new book, which is out today. Um, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so exciting. Activist Theology, which I think last time you were on the show, you'd either just started writing it or just announced that you were getting ready to write it. Yeah. So you've done a lot of work in between then and now, yeah. Um, yeah. written this book. That's huge. I mean, and tell us a little bit about the book. Like I've read parts of it, I have things I want to talk about, but First, I'd love to hear about it, kind of in your own words, for for people who don't know about it. Well, I'm deeply humbled that I have a book, and I know that it's no small feat to publish a book these days with the vast changes and the rapid changes that publishing is taking. Um, and so, I'm humbled. Number one, the book is uh, driven by story, and the book is really my story of recovering my roots and really trying to dig into some of the questions that have animated my life and my struggle and questions that I think probably a lot of us have, but are too scared or maybe too conflicted to say it out loud. Um, I spill the family tea. Um, I talk about being on food stamps and public health uh, during my first faculty post and um, I talk about resilience. I talk about Charlottesville. Um, I talk about a lot of things. And uh, it's my attempt to be faithful in the small things and uh, to be really faithful and honest and transparent with my public platform and uh, to to get my hands dirty uh, with people. So that's a little bit about the book. So it's, so it's, it's activist theology. Would you really argue is is I mean you 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 don't necessarily define activist theology in in a way that is like easily digestible, right? right? Would you agree with that? Like, yeah, is is more of a way of being correct? Yeah, and and that's on purpose. Um, 
I feel like we can see in our theological traditions that there are certain camps of theology, right? Um, and I didn't want activist theology to at some point be like a particular camp. Um, I did want it to be a way of being and a way, an, an expression of life um, and um, about our social practices and about how we are with one another um, instead of, instead of being able to say, this is what activist theology is. No, activist theology is, are we committed to collective liberation and are we committed to the radical flourishing of all creation? That's activist theology, right? I mean, if, if I need to define it, but, but really there's, there's many steps in between radical flourishing and activist theology, which is how we treat one another, how we are, what's our orientation, um, what kind of human do we want to be? Um, so I, I gesture toward it, but I don't come down and define it. And that's on purpose. And, and you start with story. And, and I think that's what's so beautiful and intriguing to me about this work. Thank you. Is the way that you take narrative mm-hmm. and, and use it as theology. You're, you, you're not separating out those things. And I mean... I have a quote here, like where you write, what makes Latino Echia theology rich is that it takes a very ground of story to be the theological gems. And then you say, I've had to find my way back to the roots of my stories and theologically reflect from lived experience. Yeah. That's your starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Story, narrative. Talk about that. Well, I just feel like I, you know, I've spent two decades in the academy from college to the PhD. And I just feel like that process of being in a white serving institution and learning to be an academic and learning to research and write with precision and with particular clear clarity and skill that, that it separates. It's a technology of separating the lived experience and appealing to a sort of um, particular kind of knowledge production. And I believe that our stories and our roots tell the truest truths. And so many of us are separated from our roots and our stories. And I decide I'm I'm risk adverse, but I was like, I'm going to take a risk and do theology from the place of story. And, um, that was not easy that, that it, I mean, it, it took three years for me to write this book and it's not very long. Um, uh, but I mean, it's, it was one of the hardest, hardest things that I've had to write, but I, but I wrote it because I knew I had to. And, um, I don't care how many books it sells or how many times it sells or how many people read it. I mean, I, I would love for people to read it. I would love to be in conversation with people who read it, but I wrote it because I had to, um, because I needed to reclaim my own story and needed, needed to reclaim the theology that motivates me and compels me to be the kind of human that I want to be. So I didn't write it for anyone else. Um, I wrote it for me and I'm humbled that people are interested in reading it. I mean, even as I was reading that, I was I was thinking about my training in narrative trauma therapy, mm-hmm. which is very much where we where we have someone write eight hundred to a thousand words about a, a hard experience, and usually in their childhood, and then we work with the tangibility of that story, yeah, kind of unpack and and how deeply relational that work is that uh-huh. that 
that realization we have to have others witness our stories in order to be able to find healing within yeah. those very stories. I mean, that's where my mind was going mm-hmm. um, as you write about the power of story, about this this idea that we often say, like, stories heal, stories change. You're grounding that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that when we let lived experience be our starting point or our point of departure, we might actually be transformed by the very thing that we're experiencing. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to model for those who are looking to have an analysis about, um, how to be better. Right. Um, I want, I want people not just to say black lives matter, but I want them to live black, black lives matter. And I think the only way we can do that is to have an analysis about our story and about our lived experience. And so I'm trying to model that to help people have an analysis about themselves so that they can really lean into the politics of radical flourishing. Like like I'm thinking about story, the ways that it helps us know ourselves so that then we can know others. Mm -hmm. I mean, would you then say like, diving into our stories is what makes radical flourishing possible? I think it creates conditions for the possibility of radical flourishing. Um, I I think that knowing ourselves and knowing our stories and learning to speak from our scars instead of our wounds, which is a Mm well-worn phrase, um, helps us know how to be in relationship with other people. Um, you know, I'm really calling for a new humanity, a new vision of humanity in this book. Um, and that new vision of humanity starts with ourselves. And I'm not trying to be hyper individualistic because I don't believe that we are just a self in isolation. I believe that we are a self in community. And um, the more we know ourselves, the the better and deeper we can be in community with others. And there's a relationship there and it's and it's it's not separate from being in a community um focusing on our own stories is what makes us even capable of being able to be in relationship with one another um the more i know myself the more i'm able to better listen to you and be in relationship with you and chart a vision for collective liberation and and we do that together we do we don't do that separately and so i i think that one of the things that this book might do or at least i hope it does is model the ways that we cannot be separate from our stories our stories of ourselves and our stories of one another that they are bound up together they're deeply entangled um and somewhere in there recalling the genesis packet passage where the the scripture says and the spirit of god hovered over the face of the deep that that's really where i'm trying to get us to so that we can experience this um place of becoming um the the face of the deep is the place of becoming um so yeah yeah i mean there is a way to do story work that is self-serving in a narcissistic way and and i'm hearing you talk about something that's so vastly different than that like and i think what what makes me say that is like there are oftentimes i hear people talk about like maybe this concept of authenticity Uh that is 
mostly just narcissism yeah <laughs> masked in this kind of popularized version of what is quote unquote authentic yeah you're arguing something very different from that correct yes yes yeah i mean i'm trying to argue for transparency and a sense of radical eminence with one's own story so that we can come close to one another um this isn't about privileging my perfect story. There are lots of flaws in my life and in my story. Um, but the ability to restory ourselves from the, the, the place of lived experience so that we can be in relationship with other people is, is the thing that I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to advocate for eradicating the separation that we've placed with one another. Um, we are separated by um, lots of things. And if we can figure out how to tell the story of our lived experience so that we be, can be connected, then we might, we might be a different humanity. We might be able to be in dialogue with one another across our, our most deep, deepest differences. Um, but we can't do that without learning to narrate our story and restoring ourselves and speaking from the I so that we can connect with the we, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It does make sense. I mean, it almost sounds like a movement inwards for the sake of the whole. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, I, I don't know if that even sounds more clear, but. <laughs> no, it, you're, you're right on. You're right on it um, because it is changing ourselves so that we can change the world. And it is about going inward so that we can go outward in more robust ways. Um, so it, it, it totally is about being entrenched with what's happening internally so that we, so that we can productively live our theologies out loud. And that makes me think of like you, you talk about theology as translating or activist theology anyway, as translating ideas into action. Yes. And how that can be a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, because I think that, that we often don't think about the impact of our theories or our philosophies. And, um, what I want, what I want us to do is I want us to take our ideas and really believe that ideas can change the world. I believe that. And I also, and I want us with that sort of conviction to, live in such a way that we are living our ideas in tangible ways. You, you have a quote as you're kind of talking about the, this idea of reframing theology as activism. You write, Christianity in particular has focused so supremely on right belief in orientation to orthodoxy that it has not been focused on the ways our social practices inform our faith. Yeah. That feels like that encompasses that so well. Yeah, I get really concerned when I hear people so focused on dogma and doctrine. I know doctrine shows up in our social practices, but what often happens is dogma and doctrine are deeply disconnected from lived experience. Um, you know, we, we have a creed because the Roman emperor forced everyone into the first council of Nicaea um, and cut off their food supply until they agreed on everything, right? That's, that's why we have the Nicene Creed. Um, and we don't, and, and, and that creed, 
um, is that focus on social practices. So what, what I want us to do is not necessarily forsake the creed. I mean, I come from a confessional tradition and so I don't come from a creedal tradition, but, but I have great respect for, um, the history and the tradition of the church. But what I want us to do is not necessarily forsake the creed, but ask of the creed, what of our social practices? And that if we are saying one thing, but acting in a different way that is in contradiction to the creed, what does that say about the creed? And what does that say about our social practices? I want us to, um, I want us to live our theologies, which is about how we are oriented in the world. Um, what are, how are we behaving, right? What, what are our habits? What are our, what are, what is the specificity of our living? Um, when we ask those questions, I think that we eradicate poverty. We build homes for people. Uh, we, you know, uh, abolish homelessness. Um, we make sure that there's no food deserts. Um, we, you know, I, I think of it like we, we, we revolutionize the Jericho Road and, and we show mercy and we live from a place of conviction and a place of being compelled to live our, to live our ideas. It's interesting to me that you, that you use the word supremely in that quote, Christianity in particular has focused so supremely on right belief. I'm imagining that was maybe intentional, but that's making me think of a connection between potential connection between right belief and supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. There, I think there's a connection. I mean, well, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that empire religion is not porch theology and activist theology is is what we're trying to do on the porch with iced tea. Um, it's what we're trying to do in the streets with, with our, with our banners and with our marches. We're, we're not trying to replicate empire religion, um, which I believe is complicit with white supremacy and supremacy culture writ large. So that would be capitalism. That would be militarism, um, patriarchy, you know, what the three prongs of empire. So, um, yeah, I, that's, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to call it out there in that sentence, um, that when we focus so acutely on dogma and doctrine, we are in alignment with supremacy culture and the theology of supremacy culture, which is, which is theologies of white supremacy, ethics of white supremacy, and so forth. I mean, I'm thinking about how often dogma, quote unquote, orthodoxy, right belief, all of those things are used as, as markers of who's who's in and who's out. Yeah. It's absolutely an upholding of supremacy. Yeah. It's inherently supremacist. Yeah. And, you know, when, you know, just if I can recall the people who have come before me and in particular liberation theologians who woke up to the inhumanity of the poor in Latin America and realized that the church was doing nothing for the poor. And I'm trying to write in that tradition, and I'm trying to help us all wake up to the inhumanity that is a result of supremacy culture, and that we are silent to the oppression of women, that we are silent to the oppression of LGBTQ plus folks, that we are silent to so many oppressions, um, to the killing of 
trans women of color to the killing of black and brown men. Um, we need to wake up to this inhumanity and we need to live differently. And that's, that's really, that's really why I, I felt like I needed to write the book because the, the ways in which black and brown men in particular and trans women of color were being killed by toxic white masculinity. I woke up to the inhumanity and I woke up to my own story and my mother still faces racism. And so I'm still waking up to the inhumanity of racism. Um, and this is, this is about waking up and this is about becoming clearer with who we want to be in the world, what kind of human we want to be. But I, but I do it in a, in a tradition larger than I am. Um, you know, the tradition of Latin American liberation theology that first sought to, to wake up to the inhumanity of the poor. You talk a whole lot about the idea of imagination in the yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and, and you start chapter one, which chapter one isn't really the beginning of the book. There's a whole lot that happens before chapter one. Yeah. But in chapter one, you start with Holy Saturday. Yeah. And you write, this is one of my favorite quotes that I've read so far, Holy Saturday is one of those moments in our life when we feel not only disconnected, but strangely alone in deeply existential ways, disconnected from the life we imagined for ourselves. Mm. And then you go on to speak to this power of being able to imagine a different future, which is, it's hard, like... (laughs) I mean, I love this idea of imagination, like (laughs) the theology degree that I have is in theology, imagination and the arts. Like there's something so incredibly important about that. And there's still the voices in my head that are like, what can imagination do? Like, (laughs) could you talk about some of the role of imagination in being able to do this work in the world? Yeah, I can try. Um, I I, I first want to say that the idea of imagination was told to me and given to me by my academic partner, Dr. Nikki Young, who teaches at Bucknell University and splits her time between Pennsylvania and Atlanta. And Nikki is one of my closest comrades and um, said to me when I was in my PhD program, I was in my office. I, I remember it distinctly. I was in my office. I was putting up some books and they have to be alphabetized so I can find them. And so I was like trying to alphabetize books and we were on the phone and, and I was concerned about what was next for me. And she said to me, Robin, the best thing that we have on our side is imagination. And it, and it literally changed, changed me. It changed my world. And so, um, I offer my own experience of imagination and use of imagination because we are failing to imagine who we can be. And, or if we are imagining, we are, we are imagining who the empire says we should be. And, and I want us to unhinge from empire's imagination. And I want us to imagine together in community how to be different and how to be together in the struggle so that we can create the kind of world we all want to see and all want to live in. And that's not just my imagination, but that's your imagination. And collectively, we build an imagination that will fortify this vision for collective liberation. Um, and I think that uh, we, we fail at imagining our future 
and and who we want to be because because we've got a boot on our neck because we live with oppression because we've so internalized patriarchy and misogyny and racism and all the things um we don't know how to imagine um but but the work of activist theology is to imagine a different world but to imagine together with one another right so it's about relationality because my my life changing when nikki told me that that didn't happen in isolation. It happened because of our relationality, right? Um, Nikki was compelled to tell me that. And she and I share a liberative relationality. And so in the midst of that being together on the phone, I was able to be moved. And I think that if we can do more of that with one another, whether it be wisdom circles or healing circles or what have you, um, I think we can chart a new humanity and a, and a collective vision for liberation. And, and I think that's why I find that this idea of Holy Saturday and that being a starting place so intriguing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you you talk about Holy Saturdays as being this this feeling of of and Holy Saturday being in the the, the triduum, the Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, but th- those moments of disconnected, feeling alone, feeling like the oppressor has won. Yeah you almost seem to tie this sense, this existential disconnection and imagination as being a disconnection from the ability to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I would. I think that the existential angst and the despair and the loneliness that is part of all of our lives, it, it is part of the conditions that prevent us from imagining. And if we can live such a life where we believe that we are deeply entangled with one another instead of fundamentally separated from one another, we might be able to imagine together. But but that's again about this is a relational thing, right? I mean, I think that we live a life of of transactionality, that everything is about a transaction. And if we can get more into a mode of being deeply entangled with one another and living a, a relational life, um, I think this will help remove the fundamental separation, those technologies that cause despair and loneliness and fatigue, and actually help us imagine how to be different. But that takes work, and and we are all very comfortable in our little silos, you know. So, um, you know, it's a it's a challenge. Is I I don't want to say that it's not work. It is um, because maybe I don't. You know, I don't know. Maybe you don't like collard greens, and I really want collard greens, and we have to settle on hot dogs because you really want a hot dog, right? I mean, this is a very simple example, but it's if we don't if we don't just live in our in our own narrative, if we can get to know our narrative and actually divest from the I and lean into the we, can we imagine um, enjoying? the fruits of what we both love instead of having to choose. Mm. That feels really important. Enjoying yeah. the fruits of what we both love instead of having to choose. I mean, cause I, I think often when we, when we think about bridge building or coming together or which I imagine is a little bit different from this entanglement that you're talking about, but often think of it as, as an exercise in, in compromise of giving up something. Yeah. And, and you're talking about enjoyment of mutuality. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time on the road talking about bridge building and ways that we can be a bridge in the world. 
And I talk about a little bit that about that in the book. And I think that when we when we learn to be bridges with one another, it's also a form of entanglement because no longer are we participating in being a drawbridge and our and and removing ourselves, but we are further connecting with one another. And if we can imagine being bridges in the world and aligning ourselves with one another, then there is a sense of entanglement and mutuality and the possibility of radical flourishing. And that doesn't happen when we are islands, silos, or a drawbridge. So we're, we're talking about imagination. We're talking about radical flourishing. There are words that can feel kind of fluffy at times. Yeah. Like, tell me some of your imagination. Like, I would love to hear, what are you imagining on behalf of us right now? Mm. I am imagining that, I'm imagining that we are all very uncomfortable with getting into our own stories. Um, and I imagine that as we learn to get into our own stories, we will learn to have hope in the story, in the story of us. Um, narrative work is, is about imagination, I think. And, um, I think the, the more we invest in, in imagination, the better we're able to imagine who we can be. Um, that's, that's, that's what I'm imagining right now. I hope that's not too redundant. No, I mean, I, I love it. Like, I, I feel like it, it brings us into that space of like, that's the work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's only redundant in the fact like that's what we have to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, and, and that's hard. We, we need to get our hands dirty. And my friends, Delta Ray, if you don't know that band, check them out. They're amazing. Um, they, they sing a song about getting our hands dirty in the work. And that, that is our work. We got to get our hands dirty with ourselves and with one another so that we can create the kind of world we want to inhabit. How can people get a hold of your book? Well, um, I've been sending people to Indie Hound, which mm -hmm. is um, a website. You plug in your zip code and it will show you all the independent bookstores where you can get my book. So check out Indie Hound. I mean, of course, you can get it at Amazon. You can also get it at Target, apparently. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So if you are going to Target to get your paper towels um, or your cat litter, um, you can see if they have it there. But I really like the idea of supporting independent booksellers, bookstores. Um, of course, I know that Nashville, you can get it at Parnassus. I know you can get it at Powell's Books up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but support your local bookstore, um, certainly. And I will say that the audiobook is coming out and um, should be out within the next week. And I narrate it and um, uh, Rebel, the, the poet who provided the poetry in the book, um, performs her poetry. And then I want to say there's a little Easter egg in the audiobook that, that you won't get in the printed book. Yeah. We'll have to look for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Robin, thank you. I, I always love having conversations with you. Thank you so much. Such a joy. Be sure to go grab a copy of Dr. Robin's book, Activist Theology, wherever you buy your books. Indiebound is a great place to do that. 
And check out Robin's work other places. Their website is irobin.com, the letter I, Robin with a Y. And they're on Instagram and Twitter at irobin. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from its listeners. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app, or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show, or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye! BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.